Well, would you remain standing for the reading of God's word? We're in 2 Samuel chapter 18. 2 Samuel 18. This is the word of the Lord for you this morning. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, you shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us, but you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it's better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule. And the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled everyone to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that's in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. It is called Absalom's monument to this day. Then Himaaz, the son of Zadok said, let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, you are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, go, tell the king what you've seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then him, Oz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? 
come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, run. Then Himaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall, and when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king. And the king said, if he's alone, there's news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gate and said, see another man running alone. The king said, he also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he's a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day, as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom! Oh, Absalom! My son! My son! Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today, I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now, therefore, arise, go out, speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. This is the word of the Lord for this morning. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. If you don't know me, uh, my name is Michael. I am the next-gen associate pastor here, so I get to pastor your kids, which is awesome, um, especially focused on junior high and high school. get to preach the word to them. Um, and in some ways, this feels like a homecoming to me because we are all about biblical literacy in DOCSA students. 
We want your kids to know the Bible. And so we go through a lot of books of the Bible each year, and each year we hit an Old Testament book. And we just finished Judges and Ruth. So, hey, that's, that's two books. Um, and like every Old Testament book, we focus especially on how it points to Jesus. That is what we are all about, seeing Jesus in all of the scriptures. So, uh, welcome to Docs of Students on Sunday morning. It's good to have you all here. Uh, you get to see what we do on a Wednesday night, and I think you'll find uh, it's not much different from what we do on a Sunday morning. The uh, title of this message this morning is The Tragic Victory. The Tragic Victory. So we are in 2 Samuel, but we're tracing out the results of David's sin with Bathsheba. God has made two key promises that we want to keep in mind at this point. Uh, first... Back in chapter 12, he promised that as a result of David's sin, the sword would never depart from David's house. We're seeing the effects of that. We're seeing the effects of David's sin play out across the story of his family, and we have been seeing that for multiple chapters now. So that's one promise. But the other promise was all the way back in chapter 7, where he, uh, he promised and committed to David that he would build David's house and that he would put an eternal king on David's throne. And so we're going to see both of those promises play out this morning. God always keeps his promises, both of them. Here's our big idea for the morning. David's tragic victory teaches us how the true king rules his kingdom. David's tragic victory teaches us how the true king rules his kingdom. As we watch David be a good king, and sometimes be kind of a meh king, and even as we see the story of an evil king receive his justice, all of it is going to point to the true king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are going to learn four facets of what it means for Jesus to be that king. That's what we're looking at this morning. Let's get started. Here's the first one. We see a king who loves his enemies. David shows us a king who loves his enemies. So David is in Mahanaim. Um, that's to the east of the Jordan River, which uh, my doctor students know east is good or bad. Bad. You guys all know. That's great. Yeah. Uh, when God's people go into exile, they go to the east. When you cross the Jordan River to the east, you're crossing out of God's territory and into idol territory. East is bad. And so David is the rightful king in Israel, and yet he's leading a band of troops all through the wilderness in exile. And he gathers his army in the gate, and he splits them into three companies, and then he wants to march out with them. But they say, no. No go, David. Why? Why don't they want to march out with him? Because they instinctively know what we saw Ahithophel say last week. You seek the life of the leader and the troops will flee, right? Cut off the head and the body falls. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And last week, that was really good advice from Ahithophel. Remember, uh, when Ahithophel gives advice, it's like hearing from the voice of God. That's what the text said. So he gives really good advice, but he gave it to Absalom, the wrong guy, and he didn't follow it. And what we're going to find here is that not only was it good advice from Ahithophel, it was actually a prophecy. 
Ahithophel was predicting what would happen in future chapters. He just happened to predict it about the wrong king. Oops. Um, and David here may also have Bathsheba in mind, right? Remember what happened last time David didn't march out to battle? That started this whole saga. And so he's like, oh, if there's one thing I'm going to do, I am going to go into battle with the troops. But the troops say, no, no, David, you should not go because you are the target. Uh, that's their reasoning. And so he doesn't. He listens to their wisdom. And then he gives his major command here. This is the driving imperative of the passage. This, uh, this command frames everything that's going to happen in this passage. And so you've got to keep this command in mind if you're going to track with what's going on in this passage. And, and we know how this works, right? The army's getting ready to march out, and you give the big pump-up speech. Uh, The general stands before them and says something inspiring in a stately tone of voice, and then it gets them going, and they're ready to march out into the face of certain death. What's David's pump-up speech? Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Not a great pump-up speech. Doesn't get the troops hyped, right? And now he says it in front of all of them because he knows how the sons of Zeruiah are. He knows how Joab is. And so he makes it clear in front of every single person, we do not touch Absalom. But it does not get the troops hyped. It's not a good pump-up speech. And I, I think this is a fail on David's part. I think it's a fail. I'm not going to die on that hill, uh, but I think we get a weak picture of David here. Just a little bit. He's making a tactical error. Uh, He's allowing his love for his son, his rebellious usurper of a son who deserves death under God's law, to cloud his ability to lead as a king. Again, not going to die on that hill. I think that's what's going on here. And what that means is that here in the first five verses, we get a picture, albeit a flawed one, of a king who loves his enemies. That's what we see in David. Uh, In David, we see a king who marches out to war and his marching orders are, love my enemies. That's what he's calling his troops to do. Now, of course, this points us to the greater king who calls his troops to love his enemies. The greater king who himself loves his enemies. If there is anything we know about Jesus, it's that he loves his enemies. Right? It's almost kind of a, it's kind of trite at this point. Matthew 5, 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. You said it's, it's a little trite. It's a little played out. It actually gets weaponized against the church by people who don't believe it. They just want us, they just want to use it so that we would do the things that they want us to do. Um, nowadays, it's, it's a given that we are supposed to love our enemies. So we've got to break ourselves out of that mindset a little bit to realize how wild this actually is. Do you realize that God actually designed you to love your own? He, he designed you to love people who are like you. Um, that's how he built us. Parents, you know this instinctively, right? A thousand times out of a thousand, you were going to pick your kid over someone else's kid. 
That's just how the thing works. That's how he made us to work. And likewise, if someone seeks to harm you or harm the ones that you love, you're going to oppose that. This is how we're made by God, and it is good and godly. And hear me clearly, the gospel does not blow up that good godly design. It's not like now the gospel is here, we're supposed to hate the people who are like us and only love our enemies. That's how the rhetoric seems to play out a lot today. No. No, we love those who are closest to us. And that's Joab. Joab is a pretty bad guy. We've seen this so far. We're going to see more of it. Joab's a pretty bad guy. But he's not actually straight villain. Kind of interesting. He's, um, he's ruthless. He's pragmatic. But he's driven by a good desire, which is loyalty to his king. That's what drives Joab. That loyalty is a good thing. How he carries out the loyalty, not so good. And so Joab is loyal to his own, but it's not enough to be like Joab. Not if you're going to be like your father in heaven. So we have Joab, and then we have David. And David is a man after God's own heart. David is a man who not only loves his own, but also loves the very army that is opposing his kingship. He's got his flaws. I think that love drives him to sacrifice justice in some places. Uh, But he errs on the side of love for his enemies. He errs on the side of giving Absalom an opportunity to repent. But you want to really be like your father in heaven? Follow the example of Christ. Not Joab, not David, but Christ. Christ is the one where we see love for enemies and justice meet. The Lord Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross for your sin, tasting the judgment that your sin deserved in an act of love for you. He brings justice and enemy love together. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And so if you want a king who loves his enemies and yet doesn't sacrifice justice in the process, turn to Christ. He is that king. If you want to be like God, follow the example of your Savior who desires the well-being not only of his friends but also of his enemies. Speaking of the cross, that takes us to our second point. This is the second picture we see of the king. It's the king who dies on a tree. The king who dies on a tree. So in verses 6 through 8, the battle starts, and what happens? Absalom's army just absolutely decimated. Right? They fall under the hand of David's army. Absalom loses 20,000 guys. Remember Ahithophel again? That's 8,000 more than Ahithophel was even going to march out with, right, with his much better plan. Uh, But the Lord used Hushai to play into Absalom's pride. He's like, don't you want to lead a gigantic army to victory in kingly splendor? And Absalom's like, yes, I do want that. Thank you. And so that's the plan that he takes, and the Lord demolishes them. God is sovereignly ordaining things so that the usurper loses the throne. There's an application for you. Uh, Even when it feels like Absalom is riding out against you with a giant army, God is still doing what God wants to do, and you have no idea how glorious that is. 
God is in charge. You may not know it until afterward, if you ever know it, but God will put you in difficult positions. God will put you in difficult positions. He's not embarrassed by that fact. Why are we embarrassed by his sovereignty when he's happy to own it? He will put you in challenging places, but he is always, always working something. And if you belong to him, then whatever he's working is always, always good. Always. So Absalom marches out. His army is defeated. They're, they're driven into the forest of Ephraim. Uh, the forest of Ephraim comes up in Judges 12. It's where Israel goes to rebel against God's leader and get crushed. So we can kind of guess what's going to happen here. Um, and apparently this army is so lame that like trees kill more of them than the, the soldiers did. <laughs> that's what verse 8 says, which is pretty brutal. Or that's just a gnarly forest, one way or the other. Um, either way, it's the hand of God delivering his anointed one. And in verse 19, we get an example of someone being lost. To, uh, sorry, verse 9, we get an example of someone being lost to the forest. Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule. And the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. You guys catch the, the symbolic weight of the way this picture is painted. Absalom is described as a half king. There are horses, kingly war animals. You ride a horse out to war when you're a king. There are donkeys, the animals that kings ride in times of peace. What does Absalom ride? A mule. Halfway between a horse and a donkey. And then he gets his hair caught in the tree. I know it says head, but well, it's implying hair. You remember that hair? That luscious, luscious hair, right? The center of his vanity. Back in chapter 14, we learn this seemingly random fact that um, Absalom was gorgeous and he knew it. And so once a year, he would cut his hair and then he would make a big national spectacle of uh, weighing it and showing people just how much hair it was, which is ridiculous. Imagine, like, our presidents doing that or something. Just ridiculous. Why is that included in the text all the way back in chapter 14? It's setting us up for this. We learn here that the source of his pride was the source of his downfall. He gets his pride, his hair, stuck in the branches of a tree. His mule, his half-kingdom animal keeps riding on without him, and now he's hanging by his hair halfway between heaven and earth. The half-king's half-kingdom just keeps marching on without him, leaving him hanging halfway between life and death. That's where he's at here. Y'all, the source of your pride will often be the source of your downfall. We learn that from Absalom here. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Remain in pride, and the very thing you were so proud of will lift you up, probably by your neck, just like Absalom. Lord, humble us. And then he gets caught. He's not just hanging in a tree. He's caught. Uh, and this is where we learn just how treacherous Joab can be. Because David's, what was David's one command? Somebody tell me. Yeah, don't hurt Absalom. 
What's the one thing you do to succeed? And, and this unnamed Israelite shows up. He wants to obey the king, right? He probably wants to cut Absalom down and take him prisoner. Uh, so he goes and tells Joab, who also wants to cut Absalom down, not quite in the same way. Uh, Joab doesn't mind a little treachery to end the war. Just the kind of guy he is. He's getting things done. Uh, he would have sold out David for silver if he needed to. Uh-oh. Um, so they spear Absalom through the heart three times. They give him his final haircut to get him off the tree. And then ten men beat him to death. Oof. Because, you know, with that many guys, who can say who really killed him, right? You know, that's kind of how we do things in sin. That's how we justify stuff. Um, and so at this point, guess what? The war's over. It's done. They got the enemy, enemy leader. Good news. And so Joab blows the trumpet to end the battle, and then he buries Absalom under a pile of stones, uh, which we learn in verse 18, that pile of stones is a pale imitation to the tomb Absalom ab actually wanted to be buried in, right? He is buried not in pride, but ultimately in shame and humility. That is how Absalom's story ends. What's the point here? Well, for his pride, Absalom actually dies under a double curse. According to the language of the Old Testament, this is a double curse. Let me show you. Uh, first, Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. If you want to remember, it's really easy. 21, 22, 23. Uh, that passage says that a criminal hanged on a tree is under the curse of God. Check. That's Absalom. And then he's buried like Achan. You all remember Achan? Joshua 6 and 7. The Israelite who defies God, he takes what isn't his, and he's buried under a pile of stones, kind of like an eternal stoning, to show that he's cursed. So Absalom has a cursed death and a cursed burial. I promise you guys I'm not just storytelling. We're going to tie this all together in a second. But keep going with me here for a second. Uh, what happens when you win a war? You call home base and you deliver the good news, right? You got to tell somebody. People need to know. And so after this, we have this whole saga where Ahimaaz wants to run and he wants to tell David the good news. Joab is smart enough to remember 2 Samuel 1 where David killed a foreigner who ran to tell him that Saul was dead. And so he's like, hey, Ahimaaz, hold up. Let's send this Cushite instead. So that's nice. Um, but Ahimaaz, ultimately, he, he negotiates with Joab. He runs anyway. He gets there first. He delivers the good news. He figures out halfway through his sentence why Joab said to hold, said to hold up, and then he kind of pivots. Uh, and then he lets the Cushite deliver the bad news. That's his game plan here. Now, this is a little bit obscured in, in the English translation, but there's a key word that pops up five times in these verses. Good news. Good news news. Sometimes it's translated news, but it's the same word five times. These guys come bearing good news. That's the Hebrew word for gospel, y'all. That's the word here. Uh, Ahimaaz and the Cushite have a gospel to proclaim. They, they come bearing the good news that the enemy has been defeated and King David reigns in Jerusalem once again. That's their message. Okay, now let's tie all of this together. Big picture overview. What happens in verses 6 through 32? 
Well, the king in Jerusalem is hanged on a tree. He's speared through the heart. He dies a death of curse. He's buried under stone. And then people run to tell the good news that the enemy has been defeated and the true king reigns once again. Does that sound familiar? Anyone ever heard of that? Where does your mind go when I describe it that way? Who are you thinking about? Say it a little louder. Come on. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. Here is what's wild about the Bible, you guys. This is crazy. Even the bad guys can help point us to Jesus. Even the bad guys, even the enemies. Y'all, Jesus died on a tree. Jesus endured the curse of God so that he could redeem us from curse and pour out his blessing on us. Jesus was stabbed through the heart with a spear. And blood and water, the two sacraments of the church, poured out his side. Jesus was buried in a tomb under stone, suffering Achan's burial so that we don't have to be buried that way. Jesus, the true son of David, raised to life three days later to reign once again in God's holy city, his church. And now we run to tell the world the gospel, the good news that there is a new king in town and you have rebelled against his holy law and yet he's done what it takes to turn you from a rebel into a friend. You just got to ask. This points us to Jesus. Absalom, whose name means father of peace, points us forward to the true prince of peace, the one who would reconcile us to God by bearing the curse of our sin and blessing us instead. Is that your king? Is he your king? Have you come to him in faith? Have you turned from your sin and been baptized as a pledge of a good conscience, aligning yourself with his team? You should. He always wins the war. Always. And you want to be on his side. Turn to Jesus if you haven't. So, so far we've seen uh, the king who loves his enemies, We've seen the king who dies on a tree. Now let's see a, a third portrait of this king. It's the king who weeps for the lost. We see a king who weeps for the lost. We just talked about Ahimaaz and the Cushite. They run with the gospel of King David's victory. And you know what's crazy? <laughs> David just doesn't care at all. He's not interested in his own victory. All he cares about is Absalom. Now, the Cushite unknowingly condemns Joab, actually, in the way that he describes this. Did you notice that? David's like, what happened to Absalom? And the Cushite's like, may the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. Oops, that describes Joab. That's going to come up in future weeks. But how does David take the news here? He is wrecked. He is distraught. He's undone. He hides himself above the gate and he is just weeping his eyes out, utterly inconsolable. Why is he weeping? Verse 33 tells us, the king was deeply moved. He went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would that I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. He's like, I wish I was dead in your place, Absalom. That's what he's saying. Now, remember with me back to chapter 12. 
David receives the news that the child that came from his adultery with Bathsheba was going to die because of his sin. He gets the news. He wept. He fasted for seven days. He pled with the Lord to, to spare him, and yet the Lord did not. And how did David respond to that death of his child? He got up, changed his clothes, took a shower, ate, went to church. That was his response. Why is his response so different here? What's up with that? Well, he tells us, with the baby, he knew he was going to see it again. That's what he says. He will not return to me, but I will go to him. He has no such hope for Absalom. And so here in chapter 19, David is weeping over the eternal destiny of his son. He is so broken over his son's lost state that he wishes he could offer himself as a substitute. Anyone here in that place, you thinking of people who are like that? A loved one, maybe a parent, maybe a sibling, maybe a child like David, maybe a best friend. They're lost. You know their eternal destiny. And just like David here, just like Paul in Romans 9, you feel like you would give up your own soul for their salvation. Here's what's awesome about our Savior. You wish you could substitute yourself for the sinners that you love. Our Savior did. He did substitute himself for the sinners that he loves. And it wasn't just for a few of his closest buddies. It was for his enemies. Behold the love of your Savior. He loves your lost loved ones far more than you ever could. Way more than you are capable of. When you pray for their repentance, when you weep for their eternal state, you are praying and weeping to the one who absolutely dwarfs your love for them. He is good. How deep the Father's love for us, right? We just sang it. How vast, beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. He loves your lost ones far more than you ever could. And so, yet again, David points us to Jesus. He just can't help pointing us to Jesus. He points us to the one who wept over this rebellious world and then went and offered himself as a substitute. What David wished he could do, what you wish you could do, Jesus did do. And yet, uh, we're driven to Jesus by way of contrast here as well. Because we saw the substitute thing, we saw the weeping, but David overmourns. He mourns too much, and he totally kills the vibe of the victory. Right? This army has fled in his name. They've undergone exile in his name. They've marched in his name. They have offered their lives in his name. And how does he repay them? He totally ignores their victory. Doesn't even say thank you. Doesn't even ask how it went. They want to party because the kingdom has been recovered. But 19.3 tells us they had to sneak into the city like deserters because it, it was so bad in the city. David does not respond appropriately, and he totally wrecks the victory. A in fact, Joab has to like slap him out of it, right? 
chapter 19, verse 5. Joab came into the house to the king and he said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines, because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you've made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today, I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now, therefore, arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. Job's like, quit it, dude. You're killing the vibe. Like, come on, you're going to lose the loyalty of all of the guys who just gave everything for you. Here's what's cool about the Bible. Even that points us to Jesus. Even that. Because what does it look like when Jesus wins a war? Contrast with David. We see it in Ephesians 4.8. Quoting Psalm 68.18. Ephesians 4.8. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In the psalm that this verse is quoting, God just absolutely wrecks his enemies. He wins. And how does he enter the city to sit down on the throne? He's got like trains of captives behind him, and he's just given gifts to people, and it's like a gigantic party. He's even given gifts to rebels, the psalm says, which is awesome. Everybody's partying. Everybody's celebrating. Ephesians 4 applies this psalm to Jesus, the victorious and conquering king who gives gifts to his church through his spirit. When Christ conquers death, he doesn't cover his head and hide away and make us like sneak into the city like these guys. He lavishly pours out gifts like a good king should. Even here, David cannot help but show that Jesus is the true and greater David. Even here. Last portrait of Jesus that we see here. It's the king who reigns again king who reigns again. How does this tragic deliverance end? Well, the king comes down, he takes his seat, and the people gather. He's reigning as king. He's not back in Jerusalem quite yet, but he's reigning as the rightful king. That's how our story ends. Let's recap what we've seen. We've learned some things about the king here. The king loves his enemies. The king weeps over his enemies. He even offers himself as a substitute. The king dies a double curse. He's hung on a tree and he's buried under stones. And then as a result of all of that, we get good news. We get gospel. The rebels are dead and the true king reigns. And then we actually see him on the throne again. Y'all, even in 2 Samuel 18 and 19, God is sovereignly ordaining the circumstances of David's life so that it's, it's just a reflection of Jesus, the Son of God, who became a human. And because of his love for his enemies, he offered himself in our place for our sin. He offered himself in your place for your sin. And he died under the curse of sin so that he could give you blessing. And then he rose from the dead, defeating death. And then he ascended to the right hand of God, reigning forever. That's where he is right now. 
Did you know that right now, in this very moment, in actual history, Jesus is sitting on a throne reigning as king? That is true right now. And so, 2 Samuel 18 and 19 is a, it's a crazy story. It's got twists and turns. But if you leave this story fascinated in Absalom or intrigued by David, but not seeing Jesus you leave this story not coming to Jesus in repentance and faith, if you leave this story not pledging your allegiance to Jesus in the waters of baptism, then you have missed the whole point of 2 Samuel 18 and 19. This passage is not about David. This passage is not about Absalom. This passage is about King Jesus, who rules and reigns right now and calls you to come to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we together acknowledge you as the one true and rightful king of the universe, the one who defeated death, the one who defeated the rebels, the one who reigns as the ultimate and all-powerful king. May we live our lives in such a way that we show that you are the king. Would our lives be a testimony to your ultimate kingly sovereign rule? Lord, please bring dead hearts to life this morning. There are people in here who do not know that you are king. Give them living hearts so they, they could submit in faith to your sovereign rule. King Jesus, it's in your name and for your sake we pray. Amen.